Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. We thank you for your goodness, and we celebrate your goodness to us here today. We celebrate your goodness in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're thankful for the good report from uh, Susan Taylor. And, and uh, Lord, it's just uh, uh, so exciting to think, Lord, that you are in the process of, of restoring her back to uh, her family, her children. And we pray that that would continue, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen her, encourage Jason, and just uh, bless those, those little children, uh, Lord. And um, we thank you for others uh, that have received answers uh, to their prayers in recent days and weeks. We thank you for the privilege that we have of calling upon your name. And as we consider this passage of scripture this morning together, Lord, uh, we ask that you would show us, continue to show us, Lord, uh, your will for our lives. Be our teacher today, Lord, we pray. We ask that the Holy Spirit of God would speak to our hearts the truth, your truth, that it might change, uh, change our lives, that we would be changed for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're into our, uh, early on into our three-year journey through the Bible. We're in the book of Genesis, and we're talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And our text today, as I mentioned, is Genesis 25. And... Uh, we're going to be also looking at the first few verses of 26 as well. Um, and it puts, puts us down right in the middle of a fertility struggle. Now, the curriculum calls this lesson, God Renews His Promise. Uh, as the promise of God and the provision of God continues to be a consistent theme throughout uh, these passages, passages and forming the precedent going forward for the rest of of Scripture all the way through, including the New Testament. God is faithful to his promises, and the covenant he made with Abraham stands. Um, I've entitled the message this morning, uh, Our Part in God's Mosaic, because that's kind of what I want to speak with you more about, and I hope the reason for that will become obvious. Genesis 25, and we're going to start reading at verse 19, and... Uh, Read down through there a bit. Uh, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Pedanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Last week we considered the finding of Rebekah and her marriage uh, to Isaac. And we rejoiced in the goodness of God and his plan for uh, them as a couple, as a man and wife. Now 20 years have gone by. No children in sight. And so I think it's safe to assume that they were experiencing a shared grief 
over their situation. You can put yourself in their shoes. 20 years of marriage, no children. It was certainly much more acute in their cultural context than it is in ours. Um, but it's something that I hope we can relate somewhat to. Um, they sh would have shared in the grief, but Rebecca probably sensed it more keenly, maybe, because of the societal expectations. Uh, we use the word infertility. Uh, but that's kind of a clinical-sounding word, isn't it? Infertility. The text says that Rachel was barren. That seems to carry a whole lot more and to capture a whole lot more of what Rebecca would have felt like, I think. Uh, the dictionary.com site defines barrenness as not producing or incapable of producing offspring, sterile, as in a barren woman, unproductive or unfruitful, as in a barren land. To certainly to appreciate the situation more fully, it would help if we had personal experience. And I'm suspecting that some of you in this room may have personal experience with that, while others of us maybe not so much. Um, or maybe we experience this in different ways sometimes too. Uh, some of you may not know this uh, about me, but I have no biological children. And I'm not exactly sure why I bring that up this morning, other than it might be helpful for you to know that about, about me. But anyways, um, the other thing that helps us to appreciate the situation here in the passage is that uh, uh, the previous scriptural references that form the overall context for this part of the story uh, there were obviously there were those promises that God made to Isaac's father Abraham that he would have offspring and that his offspring would become a great nation through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. So there's that part of the context, and that's important. It's very, very important to understanding the angst that Rebecca and Isaac would have been experiencing. But there's, but it, but it goes even broader than that and, and reaches farther back than that as well because if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, you will recall these words from the Lord to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Those statement, that statement is repeated to Noah and his family, in Genesis chapter 9. Same words, God said, be fruitful and multiply. It's more than that even. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangel, the first occurrence of the, the uh, uh, gospel promise in Scripture. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. The significance of this for us today is that our salvation and the eradication of the curse and the defeat of the evil one comes to us with the pro promise of progeny, of offspring. 
And all of these things would have been things that, that uh, Isaac and Rebekah would be very, very much aware of. So there was this specific promise of a seed, or seed with a capital S, as Paul points out in the New Testament, referring to Jesus, the Savior, the one who would conquer Satan forever. But there's also the general promise of a blessed life. Think about that. Sometimes we don't feel like we're experiencing a blessed life. Sometimes we feel like we're experiencing a barren life. Now, last week we thought a little about the challenge sometimes in finding a life's mate and the struggle that comes with uh, coming to terms with that and surrendering to God's will in such a matter as that. And today it's the same, only different. We're not talking about finding a life's mate, but we're talking about children. And they're not unrelated, right? These are big things. These aren't small things. These are really big things. And it helps us to enter into the, the, uh, the story and think personally about, about what it would have been like for them. Today we have dating sites and fertility clinics, but there's no guarantee is there? And so there is in this passage uh, a profound sense of, of helplessness. And it's the type of helplessness that can lead people to despair. You may know people that are despairing. Because some of the really big things in their lives are not causing them to feel blessed, but causing them to feel barren. So it's important for us to see it and feel it for what it is as it relates to our subject this morning. What is the subject this morning? Well, this passage that we're looking at is a classic example of the biblical view of the most single, uh, of the single most perplexing, most haggled over, argued over and wondered about aspect of life in this world. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man. It's not that this tension between these two realities doesn't come up elsewhere because it's everywhere in Scripture. But this passage here re-illustrates it so graphically that even when it comes to Paul's exposition about uh, God's sovereignty and election in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, this is the second example he points to. The first example he points to is Abraham. The second example he points to is the example here of Isaac and Rebekah who would give birth to uh, Jacob and Esau. Now, I should add to that a small caveat because uh, little me is not going to propose in the next uh, 20 minutes or half hour to offer a comprehensive and satisfying uh, solution to the determinism free will debate. 
because there are good reasons, very good reasons, why this is the single most perplexing, most haggled over, and most wondered about aspect of life. It's not a simple thing. Let me read for you a quote from a Christian philosopher. His name is John C. Wingard. And just for curiosity's sake, the C stands for Calvin. Um, listen to uh, what, uh, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that interesting? He's a Christian philosopher, and uh, this is just a little wee tiny excerpt from an article that he, that he uh, wrote that I clipped. And he says here, he says, The problem of freedom and determination, as it is often called, is at bottom the issue of whether morally significant freedom, or free agency, and the moral responsibility of which such freedom is supposed to be necessary condition are compatible with causal determinism with respect to the acts of human agents. By morally significant freedom, I intend simply that freedom that an agent must possess to be morally responsible for any particular act that he or she performs. So the question is this, can we be free in the morally significant sense if all our acts, including our choices, are causally determined by antecedent events and or states? Did you get that? Or do I need to repeat it? No, I won't repeat it. But... But that's what you get into if you want to explore this topic in, in any kind of detail, any kind of depth within the realm of philosophical uh, discussion or theological discussion, that's what you're in for. So I'm just giving you a warning. The point is, and the point I'm trying to make is this not a simple matter. And anybody who comes to you and says, uh, you know, oh, that whole sovereignty, God, free will thing, you know, it's, 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 just, it's like this, boom. Just dismiss them. Okay? Don't even give them a second listen. It's not a simple thing. And right here at this point, before we get any farther into this passage, uh, I think we need to acknowledge something. And what we need to acknowledge is, in a word, uh, is mystery. There's mystery in this. Do you understand that there's things that God doesn't tell us? There are things that we are just not intended to know, at least not in this life. You know, I have this expectation. Maybe, I'm, maybe it's not the right expectation to have because I have this expectation that someday I'm going to understand all this. <laughs> and maybe I never will understand it all. But the Bible does say, then we shall know even as we are now known. So I have some biblical basis for my expectation. But, but in this life, there are things that we will not know and things we will not be able to figure out. Um, it's not a simple matter, and, and uh, I don't purport myself to be anything special when it comes to deep theological, philosophical questions. However, uh, I, I'm hoping that we'll be able to observe some things in uh, the particulars of this text that we can find helpful. Um, but as I say, I, we need to acknowledge that there is, in this, a sense of mystery. And how does God do this? How does he remain absolutely sovereign over all of the events of human history and yet at the same time somehow allow us choice? And the answer is, I don't know. Nobody knows, except for God, and he's not saying. 
He's not telling us that. He's not giving that. And if you're not prepared to accept that life in this world, as God oversees it, involves a lot of mystery, well, you're in big trouble. Because you're never going to figure it out, Jalen. You're never going to have all those answers, are you? Right? Job searched for those answers. God never answered his question. And that's not a bad thing. Would you consider that with me? You know, it probably, for one thing, it would probably make your head explode. You pop, pop, you know, messy, very messy. <laughs> it's not a bad thing, it, it, really, when you think about it, because here's why it's not a bad thing. Because there is no worship without wonder. That's, um, that's probably even tweetable. But think about that, okay? Th th really think about that. There is no worship without wonder. We worship God. And we wonder at his ways that are be beyond us. What did Isaiah say? Or what did God say through Isaiah? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my thoughts and your thoughts and my ways than your ways. That tells us something, doesn't it? That's scripture. That's not me. That's scripture. That's God saying that to you and to me. That's the way things are. You are never going to figure this all out. Are you okay with that? Can you just kneel down and worship a God who is greater by far than any one of us or all of us put together? I hope we can. We're never going to be able to figure it all out, how, how it all works. Um, God doesn't reveal that to us. Uh, what he does reveal, however, is what that looks like in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today because that's what we're going to be looking at here is what does that look like in our lives. So here we are considering a passage of Scripture. Follow me here. Here we are considering a passage of Scripture that is all about how God sovereignly sets in place your future and mine, and yet, lo and behold, right in the middle of this passage is prayer. Now, if there was ever anything that really typifies the tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, it has to be this thing we call prayer. It says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Prayer plays a pivotal role in the storyline. And why is that so significant? Well, think about it. God already has a plan and he knows what he's going to do. And if God already has a plan and he knows what he's going to do, why pray? Have you ever wondered about that? Is there anybody here that has never wondered about that? Okay, that's what I thought. Of course, we've all wondered about that. And I would say to you that in this way, prayer almost serves as a hinge as a hinge between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. 
um, between those two realities. Over here, we have the things that we can do. The things that we can do to see that things go the way we want them to go. Okay? Over here, we have the things that God says he will do and that he is going to do. And right in the middle, between those two things, we have something we call prayer, which consists, follow me, which consists of us asking God to do something that we cannot do, but that he says he can do. So right in this classic text, that's all about how God superintends all the details of our lives, in spite of even human self-will, God plunks down prayer. What do you do when you're facing something like this? What do you do in your life when you're in a situation and, and, it's, and it's so... Um, burdensome for you and, and grievous for you and, and heartbreaking and, 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 and oppressive. What, what do you, you do? Well, I know what you do. You pray. Right? You pray. That's what Isaac did. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 21. Hallelujah. Answer prayer. It's right there. Hallelujah. 20 years barren. And it says that Isaac prayed, and God heard his prayer, and God responded to his prayer, and Rebekah conceived. Answered prayer right there in the text. God gave him what he asked for. And so, so I, I don't think we should miss the simple significance of that. Isaac prayed. God responded. It's pretty simple. It's not complicated. It's not as complicated as the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man and all of the philosophical, theological nuances and complications and implications and ramifications that we could talk about. God cuts through all of that and he just says, Isaac prayed for Rebecca because she was barren and God heard his prayer and she conceived. Marvelous in its simplicity. Humbling, if we will allow it to humble us. Say, well, what about this and what about that? I don't know. Well, what about this? I don't know. All I know is that God is great and God is able and God calls me to pray. At the end of the day, that's what I know. And the children struggled together within her. Hold on a minute. Children? Children? 
I'm not sure that that's what Isaac prayed exactly in his mind. Right now, Isaac's saying, I should have been more specific. You know, it's that old saying, be careful what you pray for, <laughs> right? Not only children, plural, but um, they're not getting along. <laughs> and right here in the passage, things take a bit of a turn. Right here in the passage, things take a turn, you know, and you can just picture, you know, it's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Something we've waited for so long, something we've wanted for so long, and, 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 and something so good. But it's this now. And you can see her, result, her, uh, her uh, response, uh, Rebecca's response in, chapter, in verse 22. She says those words that she speaks for you and for me. Why is this happening to me? <laughs> How many times do we say that? How many times have we said that? I, she speaks for all of us. Why, why is this like that? this is it why why is this happening to me answered prayer yes but not always the way we think hmm. so Rebecca did what you would expect her to do says she went to inquire of the Lord verse 22 she went to inquire of the Lord I don't know what that looked like I don't know where she went uh, if it was a special place that she had marked out in her life where she would go and pray, um, that could be it because that's not a bad idea. Maybe you have a place like that. The, uh, I think it was the uh, older Celtic uh, Christians that used to talk about the thin place and uh, the uh, you know uh, place where heaven and earth seem closer together. Um, I would suggest to you that uh, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, Every place is made holy, and we can commune with God through Jesus Christ no matter where we are. John chapter 4, you can read about that. But we still have this idea that, we, uh, that prayer is a place we go. We even use that language. We talk about going to prayer, right? It's time to go to prayer. Where is that? It's right here. <laughs> but but we, So we're, we're, where are we going? We're going to the Lord. We need to take this to the Lord. So I would suggest to you, really, it's a place in your heart, right? We go to the Lord in our hearts, and we pray. And so, so Rebecca did this, and the Lord uh, said to her, verse 23, and I don't, we don't know exactly what that looked like either, you know, uh, but the, how, you know, what, what that sounded like, or how God, you know, spoke to her, or how he spoke to Abraham or Isaac, but, but the point is, is that God heard her prayer and responded to her. And in verse 25, uh, or verse 23, sorry, for, through verse 26, it says, the two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older, older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And it says there, uh, in verse 26, Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. I'm not sure we consider this a full answer to her question. Why? Do you think? Mm, no, not a full answer. God never really tells her why. 
He tells her what's to expect, but he never answers the why question. And I guess this is kind of par for the course because God usually, sometimes he does. Thank God when he does show us. Hindsight's twenty twenty. But uh, but God doesn't seem to answer her why. Um, but um, I think there's something we need to recognize here in all of this. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we need to rec- recognize is that when we're searching God in this world, we need to expect the unexpected. Because this is a curveball. And God sometimes throws curveballs. It's not just the fact that they were twins. That's maybe a bit of a shock. But hey, that's, that's, we can get over that shock probably pretty quickly. Twins are good, Right? Amen? Amen. But these twins were in conflict. And conflict, eh, that's not so good. How are you guys getting along? Pretty good? <laughs> Get the nod from the mom. That's, I'll go with that. It says, what they were, it says they were divided and uh, that they would become two nations in conflict. And, and it says that God said to her, the older will serve the younger. And this was not the norm. This was completely out of the norm. This was not the way it was supposed to work. In the culture of the day, it was always the firstborn male who had the rights of the firstborn. That's the way it was. And that was the expectation. Um, So, looking at some of these things, what can we say about about some of this? And and as we continue to read the story, and we'll see how it plays out. let me give you a little bit of, a, of what I would suggest as a bit of a synopsis of the, of the situation. That I would say that God exists and that he is great, that he is all-knowing and that he is almighty and he is good, infinitely good. And he is sovereign over all and he is, his steadfast love endures forever. When he promises something, it's going to happen. When he plans something, it's going to take place. When he determines something, you know it is going to occur. But God chooses to work in a world that's very broken, messed up by sin and dysfunction, more than we can fathom, truth be known. God is so great and so good that he is able and willing to make a masterpiece out of the broken pieces of our lives. And that in this way, all of the broken pieces of our lives are swept up, as it were, into God's hands, and he does with them as he wills. And that is a marvelous thing. That is a wonderful thing. That is something that is beyond us. You know, it says that... Let me... Let me just uh, Nick, I don't know where Nick, Nick went, but Nick uh, Stinson spoke from uh, Genesis 22 uh, a couple of weeks back. And it says there that, it uh, starts out and says, and God tested Abraham. Remember Abraham and Isaac, the offering of Isaac and so on? I'll, I'll try to make this quick because I am running out of time. But um, it says there that God tested Abraham. Well, in the Hebrew, uh, the word test and the word tempt are the same word. In fact, if you look in the authorized version, the King James Version, it says that God tempted him. Same word in Hebrew. In the New Testament, if you go to the book of James, we're talking a different language now, we're talking Greek, but even in Greek, the words tempt and the word test are the same word. 
So if you go to, to uh, James uh, chapter 1, and you don't need to go there, but you can just make a note and go there and look at it. I'll tell you basically what it says there. It says is that, it says that uh, don't be concerned about all the trials that come on you. Well, that word trials is the Greek, it's just the Greek word for, for, uh, for test. But it's also the Greek word for temptation. But later on in the, in, uh, in the chapter, it says God doesn't tempt anybody. Who's the tempter? Satan is. So how does that work? It's a mystery. When something happens in this world, you say, is God involved in it? Absolutely. The Bible would say he's in control. He never loses control. It's never out of his control. Is Satan involved in it? Usually, yes. He's got his hand in there, too. And to quote Joseph, as we'll go on in the book of Genesis, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. So God overrides and overrides all of the evil in the world. Does God commit sin? No. Does he commit evil? No. Does he use it? Absolutely. And, all, and here's the amazing part and the wonderful part. Even though God is never the author of sin, sin does not change the ability, God's ability to make something wonderful out of your life. This becomes very comforting when we fall and when we fail. Because sometimes we think when we fail or when we fall, that's it. I've blown it. Oh no, I've blown God's plan for my life. People, God's bigger than that. And his grace, Paul says in Romans 5, is greater than all our sin. I'm not encouraging you to go out and sin. I'm just saying, because that wouldn't be good. That's not right, and the Bible doesn't say that. I'm just saying that our view of God needs to be expanded, needs to be blown up. We need a much bigger view of God and his greatness. Um, uh, just let's, let's read through the rest of that section there. It says in verse 27 and following, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What is this? This is the living out of the, the, the words that God said to Rebekah. This is what God declared to Rebekah was going to happen, happening. Jacob and Esau made choices. And they had the, the will to do that. And they made their choices. And they lived with those choices. But God had already said it and determined that it was going to happen. How do those things go together? It's a mystery. It really is a biblical mystery. Even at the end of um, 
I'm going to skip that Hebrews passage, Don, if you could, just for time. Even at the very end of uh, Romans 9 through 11, where Paul discusses the whole subject of the sovereignty of God and, and, and the doctrine of election, at the very end of it, this is his conclusion. Uh, we'll put it on the screen. Romans 11, 33 and verse 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his, how inscrutable his ways. The authorized version says, and his ways past finding out. And then it, he concludes uh, with these words, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. See, Paul's response to the whole mystery of the greatness of God in terms of how he can do all this is one of worship. It's part of why we worship God, because we can't figure this all out. We just know that he does it. And if, you're, if we're not careful, we fall off on one side of this or the other, uh, it has real implications uh, for, for us because there is no worship without wonder. Um, scripture teaches both. That God is sovereign and that you and I are responsible. I believe there's a biblical emphasis. I believe that scripture emphasizes God's sovereignty more than he emphasizes your responsibility and mine. That's why I would be classified uh, as mostly a Calvinistic uh, person. Because I believe that is the biblical emphasis. However, I, I, I have seen uh, the sovereignty of God championed in a way that downplays, diminishes, or ignores the freedom of choice that God has given us, including our responsibility to pray. And that distorts the scriptures. That's a distortion of the picture that the scriptures paint. We have to be able to live with some mystery. We have to be able to humble ourselves and simply trust God and obey him. Uh, just we'll close this morning with the first part of Genesis 26, and you'll see why um, the text, uh, the curriculum, uh, sets these scriptures out together for the, the kids and the youth and as well as the adults today. Um, and there's good reason for that. Genesis 26, 1 to 6. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give them, um, will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. There's two reasons why we're ending with this passage. One is because it sets out the reiteration of the covenant to Isaac. God had said that to Abraham. Now he's reiterating it to Isaac. So this is God uh, uh, passing that uh, same promise on to Abraham's son, Isaac. So that's one reason that it's, uh, we're ending with this. Um, uh, there's another one, which I'll mention just in a second. But before I mention it, though, I just when you're reading that, did you, did you notice there the wording is, is interesting? I find it very interesting. It says there... Um, uh, and the, God says, I will do all this. Um, 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to you your offering all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge. What's interesting about that is, is that when the promise is set out to Abraham, uh, in the passages leading in up to this one, they're, all, they're unconditional. God never hinges his promise on Abraham's ability to obey or be faithful. He just says, I'm going to do this. Just that simple. Uh, Jason, when he preached on the covenant in Genesis 12 and 15, uh, Jason McClellan talked about how when during the covenant ceremony, that instead of having both parties pass through the animals, God, God passed through. It was an unconditional covenant. But it's interesting here that he brings Abraham's faith and obedience into it. And the lesson, I think, for us is really pertinent. It's really important. That we cannot understand the sovereignty of God in a way that somehow lets us off the hook. You know, God's just going to do what he's going to do. See, this was the theology that led to the, those who would say, you know, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In uh, Romans chapter 6, right? It's that, that uh, taking uh, lightly and presuming upon the grace of God and, and thinking that our obedience doesn't matter. Our prayer doesn't matter. Listen, I believe God is absolutely sovereign. I believe that he's going to do every single thing he says he's going to do, and I believe he's determined it. But I believe at the same time that if I take a, a complacent attitude about my faith in the Lord and my, and my obedience to God and, and, and my calling on his name and asking him, uh, then I've, I've misrepresented scripture. Because if you take this to the end, this is what you do. There's no need to pray. Prayer, prayer doesn't matter. God says it does matter. And our faith matters. And our obedience matters. And you, you put that together any way you want. I just, leave, I just leave all the details with God. I trust him explicitly. I believe in him. I, I, I have a, an elevated view. I, I need a, a more elevated view, but coming out of the scripture, an elevated view of God and his greatness and his sovereignty. But the other reason that we conclude with this passage here is uh, because it sets the context for that promise. Did you notice the context for the promise that God made to Isaac or that God reiterated to Isaac? It says, I'll read the first verse again, there was a famine in the land. What is a famine? When does a famine happen? When no rain, no growth, no fruit. When the land ceases to bear fruit, you have a famine. That's where barrenness comes from. That's how a land becomes barren. And I just find it fascinating how even as God is making these promises of blessing, there's a famine in the land. What are you going to do? Why would God do that? You know, when I came to Christ, it was a desperate day. I was at the end of myself. I felt completely and utterly helpless. 
I recognized that there was no way that I was going to have the kind of blessed life that I really wanted to have. All of the heartache, confusion, doubt, anger, sense of helplessness and desperation, you see, I think God uses it. I think he uses all of that. I think he always has ever since the beginning. He uses that so that we, you know, like what was God waiting for? And I, I don't mean to drag this out. It's 10 after 12. But, but what was he waiting for? They were married for 20 years. What was God waiting for? I think he was waiting for this. It says that Isaac prayed for Rebecca. I, I don't think he started praying after 20 years either. But I believe that God has a purpose in his waiting, just as he has a purpose in the barrenness. It's so that we recognize that we are not nearly as in control of our own lives as we like to think we are. And the choices we make and the things we do in the end are not what's going to produce the kind of results that only God can do. Because in order to have a blessed life, you need to have a blesser. And God says, he is the one. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Call on my name. I'm going to get you to stand, if you would. We've only covered a short passage of scripture, but we've covered a fair amount of ground this morning in terms of our topics. You know, those are big subjects. They really are. And I don't know what all God might have you or I take from this. Maybe certain aspects of what we've talked about will stand out to you or Maybe, you know, somebody's here this morning and you've really struggled with prayer because of some of the things we've talked about. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you're in a barren place. And it might not be lack of children. It might be another type of barrenness because there are different kinds. <clears throat> maybe you've allowed this whole philosophical, theological discussion about sovereignty and free will to just kind of paralyze you in your walk with the Lord. I don't know. But I am praying that God will take whatever it is that he wants you to take from this and that he'll apply it to your heart and to your life and, and, and to mine as well. Um, I invite you to uh, pray with me. Lord God in heaven, we do not have the answers to some of these perplexing life questions. We recognize it. We acknowledge it before you even now, Lord. But we are grateful that you are mighty and there is nothing too hard for you and that you are all-knowing and that you do have it all figured out and you do have a plan. And we worship you because of your greatness. We call upon you because of your greatness and your great love, your
your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Lord, we are in awe of how you do that. We don't understand it. And we respect that you do not feel we need to understand it in order to worship you, in order to call upon you, to pray, and to obey you. Lord, we need your help, though. We need you to drive these truths deep into our hearts so that we would worship you the way you deserve to be worshipped, that we would trust you and follow you. Lord, I pray you'd meet the need of each heart here, and even today that, that we would leave here with firm resolve to go to you, to go to you in prayer, to look to you as the one and the only one who can bless our lives and do all those things that we just cannot do because it's not in us. We don't have it. Please forgive us, Lord. Forgive our sin. Forgive our, our faithlessness. Give us faith. Strengthen, us, strengthen our faith to serve you. And Lord, when we fall and we, when we fail, us to not lose hope help us to to allow look to look to you and allow you to pick us up and rejoice in your goodness and how you can take all the broken pieces of our lives make something beautiful for your glory and our good in Jesus name amen